All right, good morning, everyone. My name is Tom Topel. I've been going here for about a year and a half. Um, I've lived in the area for um, about five years and taught uh, at Wheaton Academy and then went to Wheaton College for theology. And now I'm teaching uh, physics over at COD. Um, this morning we are going to talk about Martin and Hillary briefly. So for you guys who were coming really excited for just all of the hagiography of Martin, maybe a little of Hillary, um, I'm sorry to disappoint. But what I want to do is I want to set them in their fourth century context. So think of this as kind of part one of two or th three or four to get to Martin and Hillary. The reason I did that is because as I opened um, some books and was flipping through, um, it just seemed really important, one, to understand that original uh, setting, uh, to understand what it meant for Martin to be um, an originator of monasticism, for Hillary to be a Trinitarian, etc. cetera. Um, so that's kind of the idea here. So, saints in their season, this is Martin and Hillary, saints in a Trinitarian season. All right. So we will talk about them a little bit. Martin of Tours, 316 to 397. So they're in Gaul, or modern-day France. So there's Tours. A few points of interest on Martin. Um, his feast day is November 11th. Uh, he was made Bishop of Tours in 371. He is the patron saint of France, uh, and he is the father of monasticism in Gaul. Hilary of Poitiers, 315 to 367. Again, a few points. His feast day is in January. He was made Bishop of Poitiers um, around 353. He is the so-called Athanasius of the West. So if that doesn't mean anything to you now, hopefully it will mean a little something to you um, in the next couple of minutes. Uh, and interestingly, he was one of the earliest hymnists that we have on record. The connection between the two, other than just overlapping in time, they are, of course, located close together. But when Martin of Tours left his military duty, so the story goes is that he kind of faced off with Julian the Apostate, the emperor, and told him that as a servant of Christ, he could no longer serve in the army, um, left back to Gaul, connected with Hillary, um, and the two together kind of pushed forward um, the theology that we'll discover today. So under Hillary's guidance, Martin became a missionary, uh, a very early figure in monasticism, and formed the two earliest monastic communities in France. So I said we're going to kind of talk around Martin and Hillary. And what I want to do to frame that is to just ask a single question this morning, and that is this. To what variety? of Christianity did Martin and Hillary, two fourth century bishops, subscribe? To what variety of Christianity did they subscribe? You might say, to Christianity, right? By the fourth century, surely they have worked everything out. There's just one Christianity, right? 
it's really far from the truth, and the fourth century is quite dramatic, uh, as we'll see. So to really generalize, and I should really put a big footnote on most everything that we're saying today, that most everything is a generalization, but true, I believe, to form. There's just some details that are ever uh, swirling around this. But at that time, what did that mean if you said, to what Christianity do you subscribe? So in general, it meant one's position on the divinity of the Son. Okay. So I need to kind of nuance my title yet again. Martin and Hillary, kind of, will kind of march around them. In a Trinitarian season, kind of. In other words, it's kind of binitarian. That is, fourth century discussions were so centered on the person, the essence, the being, the nature of the Son. The Spirit does get in there. Uh, and he actually gets amended at the end of this period. Um, but it's really all about the sun for the fourth century. So the fourth century, let's get an overview. So save for the first century, the fourth century is arguably the most formative for what Christianity became. Why? After the late third century persecutions, we have the very famous Constantine. What Constantine does, of course, is takes on Christianity, though late in his life he's baptized by one of the Eusebians. Um, and he is the one who calls the Council of Nicaea. Um, he is the one who tries to forge some unity among all these diverse classes of Christians. Um, so he is, of course, very important, a very complex figure and historians and theologians make much uh, of Constantine in either direction, good or bad, in politicizing uh, Christianity. Constantius, the son of Constantine, so it's a little confusing. Everyone after Constantine is constant something. <laughs> right. So Constantius, too, he's um, a pivotal player in this. We won't hit on him too much. We said Julian the Apostate, he, after Constantine, is the one who is not quite ready uh, to move on his, uh, I believe, his uncle's Christianity. So he wants to revert back to uh, really a, th a, theor a theurgy. Um, he wants to go back to kind of classical learning. He strips the learning or the paideia from the Christians, but that only lasts a few years. He's killed on the Persian front. And finally, kind of the close of the century uh, is with Theodosius, who is the last ruler of East and West. So you probably know that the empire split, uh, and Theodosius is the last one to um, rule over both. All right. So we see with Constantine, we have kind of the first bookend of fourth century theology. He calls Nicaea. Um, he himself is Latin speaking, but he invites West and East, Latin and Greek. They come together and they kind of hammer out what becomes the Nicene Creed uh, with all of its anathemas, um, et cetera, et cetera. As we'll see, the drama that we want to cover this morning is really the arc that carries us from 325 to 381, and we'll see that Hillary and Martin live right in between. Okay, So with Constantinople, 
we get the creed that we say each Sunday, but in between, it's quite a drama. So a little um, orientation. So on the left, of course, we have to put in quotes, the quote, Latin speaking West. It's true that they spoke Latin. It was not actually a requirement to be a, Latin, a Roman citizen. It's true that most politicians, poets, priests, etc., would have spoken in Latin. Um, from Alexander's conquest, um, from in 350s BC and his spread of kind of Hellenism to the East, um, the East becomes generally Greek speaking. Again, in quotes, because the armies of Rome are spread over uh, the Eastern Mediterranean basin and they are speaking Latin really until the sixth or seventh century. But it never takes hold as really a formal uh, language in the East. That's important, as schematic as it is, because this is going to split languages. It's going to split conceptualities. It's going to split the way that they're thinking. And what we'll see today is one of the major difficulties of fourth century theology was getting the words right, right? Just trying to communicate to one another. Even if you spoke Greek, as we'll see, if someone says usia, many people have different takes on what that means. All right, that really will be our discussion today. Okay, the major cities, you've got Rome, of course, but with Constantine, you've got the Nova Roma. He sets up in Constantinople. Um, it's an incredibly strategic, beautiful area uh, next to Nicaea. And these cities, if you know anything about early Christianity, these are kind of the major hubs of what's going on. I should mention at this point, in a couple of slides, kind of halfway, I've got just a pause for questions. So if you have anything uh, pressing, if, um, if you really need to ask, you can. But until then, uh, that'd be great. Um, I took this from Basil, the Cappadocian. Um, he is later than our story. But he's, this could easily be pulled from any of the early church writers. Uh, and I wanted to motivate what we're talking about this morning. So here's what Basil writes in a letter. He says, as we are baptized, so also do we believe. As we believe, so also do we give glory. Therefore, since baptism has been given to us by the Savior in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we offer a confession of faith consistent with our baptism and a doxology consistent with our faith. So, so many of the early church writers draw on this kind of baptismal picture that if Jesus gave to the earliest disciples uh, this, uh, compelled them to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that then lays the groundwork for later liturgy. Um, it seems that to many of the early exegetes that they're claiming worship for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's an important point. Right. Everything we're going to say today, though it's abstract, somewhat philosophical, it all is driving and being shaped by all the contours are coming out of exegesis. They really want to understand what is scripture doing us, doing in pushing us from the monotheism of Israel um, to what will become the tritheism of Christianity. So you might ask, after this talk, what was all of that about? Why would we care? Is it still relevant? Well, really, the Christian faith, of course, is unique in its claim to Trinitarian 
the Trinitarian framework. And ideally, this is difficult to do, but it, ideally, it really is the center of all of these uh, diverse aspects of the church. So the liturgy is kind of the two hands reaching out to us in Irenaeus's language. Uh, it carries us to the cross. The spirit brings us back to the Father. Again, exegesis, they're trying to understand deeply what is going on with the Son of God who sends the spirit, who calls us back to the Father. Theology, proclamation, philosophy, culture, all of these things, of course, stacks of books, papers, prayers uh, have been written. So it's not too much to say that really Trinitarian theology is at the center, um, or perhaps should be, of, of Christian thought. A brief look back then. I won't spend much time here at all. So Again, we said save the first century, the fourth century is arguably the most important, but clearly there are forerunners who are trying to address this issue of what will become the Trinity. So just a few names, if you're, if you're interested, you can kind of follow up on them, and I've given them um, kind of a little title. So the Apostolic Fathers, of course, are named such because they follow on or are supposed to be connected to the Apostles. So we have Ignatius and Polycarp in the second century. Polycarp uh, is martyred, he sends letters, and in his letters before he's martyred, he really draws on things that sound very much kind of Nicene orthodoxy. Um, so he's quite early. Similarly with Ignatius in his prayers, um, so I call him the forerunner. Uh, the apologists, you may know Justin Martyr, Theophilus in their books, in their letters, uh, they're drawing on Greek philosophy, they're drawing on uh, Jewish categories, and they're trying to fit them in, organize them, so that they can make this, um, this argument uh, for Christianity. So Justin, philosopher of the Logos, Theophilus, the word both imminent and expressed. So just a kind of catchphrase to say what they're about. The apologists, of course, are going up against the predominant pagan culture. The polemicists, however, once Christianity gets established, the argument turns from outward to inward, unfortunately. That is, the polemicists are internal to Christianity and are arguing amongst one another. Um, the benefit, of course, is that it's hammering out as, as exegetically what uh, is best and most proper to scripture. Um, but again, it just leads to kind of bifurcation upon bifurcation. So some very famous figures, and then we'll turn to our century. Irenaeus, I mentioned the two hands. He's famous for the son and the spirit kind of reaching out and doing the father's work. Uh, he is kind of standing up against a number of Gnosticisms, um, probably most prominent, the Valentinian form. Um, Clement, he is again kind of like the apologists, grabbing a hold of Greek categories, philosophy, and trying to overlap that with Revelation. Um, Origen is both famous and infamous, if you know anything about him, just a brilliant mind um, who is held dear and condemned. So. And in the West, you've got Tertullian and Novation, and they are going up against modalism in the West. I should say something about monarchians and modalism, because that's going to kind of set the frame for the argument in the fourth century. 
Anyone know monarchianism? Can you sum it up in a line? Monarchianism. What would you guess? Okay. All right. Good. Good. So monarchianism, um, and again, everything that we're saying here is too clean, right? So there are many varieties of what we might put under the heading of monarchianism. But monarchians see the father as dominant and anything else that you might subscribe uh, to divinity um, as subordinate, that really there's, there's one God. Modalism is kind of a variety of that. Um, and just the root there, the three persons um, are really just modes of one divine being. So modalism, there is strictly just one divine being, God. When we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the baptism, that's of course a difficult text for the modalists, what's happening there. Um, but the idea is that from the human perspective, you have three modes of one being who is just manifesting himself. So not three persons in the language of today. Yeah. So Marcion is kind of a variety of his own. Again, a Christian movement where he's shaping scripture to kind of match a particular ideology. He dismisses the Old Testament. He kind of splits the Old Testament God and the New Testament God um, in, in his language. Um, and so Origen is going up against that as well. One struggle and one subtext among all of these things, of course, is wrestling with the Hebrew scriptures. Right? Do, are they our scriptures? Are they Israel's scriptures? Um, all of those questions are then coming in with this great confluence of Greek categories. Um, so all of this is uh, a very rich complex at the time. Okay. All right, so that is a brief look back. That brings us um, at least closer to where we want to be. So the next several slides, I want to take us through uh, the course to Trinitarian consensus. And again, big footnote, consensus, kind of, right? Consensus as we look back over a very clean history and we define Nicene, Constantinople, Orthodoxy. Um, but we'll see how we get there. So I want to place, remember what we're doing, we're placing Martin and Hillary in their fourth century and we're asking the one question, to what type, what variety of Christianity did they subscribe um, among the options? So I wanna take us through stage one, Alexander and Arius. You are probably familiar with uh, the Arian um, theology that was prominent and then fell and then rose and then fell. Um, so early on in the fourth century. That gets, uh, that moves into Nicaea when Constantine calls that in its aftermath. Stage three against Marcellin, um, who takes Nicaea perhaps too seriously uh, and it swings the other way. Then stage four, the rise of the Homoians, where it swings back the other direction. And in fact, almost wins. So it's really interesting to see the kind of exigencies, uh, how tentative it is that it moves back to Nicaea by 381 when the Cappadocians kind of take all. All right, so that's fourth century in a nutshell. And I just wanna unpack each one of those. Okay. So let's start with Alexander and Arius. So we're in Alexandria, uh, the northern tip of Egypt, which is of course a central 
hub of early Christianity. In 318, Alexander um, circulates a letter in which he wants to clarify a few things. Uh, and the main thrust of it is that the Son, as Word, as Logos, is intrinsic to the being of God. And so is not only the image, but is the very perfect image of God. All right, so sounds Nicene already. The presbyter, Arius, however, writes a work called the Thalia, all right? And here's what he says. He says, God is unique. There is one God. He's untouchable, right? He's untouchable. So he can't do these things that you're claiming for the Son. But if you say that the Son is the perfect image and somehow in the Father, it sounds like you're connecting God, who should be removed from creation, to creation. Arius rather says this. He says, God is unique. He is alone in generate. That is, he's not generated. He, has, he is not begotten. He is alone eternal. He is alone without beginning, alone immortal. So he very much uh, wants to protect the uniqueness of God, the oneness of God. So strict, perhaps too strict, monotheism. No room for the Son, no room for the Spirit. On the other hand, God is known and acts through a mediator, the Word, and this is crucial here, a being created by fiat, by the spoken word, from the Father's will. So all of those things are really loaded terms, right? He is a creature by fiat on the Father's will, all right? If you need to know or if you kind of have to recall what is Arianism again, one of the most famous slogans is this. There was once when the sun was not. There was once when the sun was not. So he's a creature. He's a, cre a creature. He's partly responsible for creation. So Arius grants that kind of prepositional uh, creative theology that through the sun comes the cosmos. Um, but he is still a creature, right? More uh, a distinct, special from the rest of creation. Okay. So that's the first stage. That kind of sets up the conflict for the rest of the century, okay? Stage two, we've already seen that Constantine sets, um, sets the agenda. He is present at the council. Uh, he has an interpreter for those speaking Greek. He thinks he understands what's happening. His main thrust seems to be stop arguing and let us forge a united empire, all right? So he calls in 325 this council. Of course, the resulting creed is strongly in opposition to Arius' uh, doctrine. And it declares that the Son was begotten. And this, again, sets the language for our talk this morning. The Son is begotten from the substance in Latin, or the usia in Greek, of the Father. Okay, So the Son is begotten from the substance of the Father and was therefore, quote, of the same being, homo usius, with the Father, okay? So those strange terms um, are really kind of pivotal terms for the century. Usia, substance, being, difficult terms, but crucial. Because the Son is begotten, goes Nicene theology, uh, not made, he is distinct from creatures. Okay. So, so much hangs on uh, this begottenness versus uh, being created. 
and therefore is equal in divinity with the Father. Okay. So much of kind of pro-Nicene Alexandrian theology of the fourth century draws a hard line and says beneath the line there's creation. If you are in that realm, you are a creature, you are temporal, you are finite, you are changing, all of those sorts of things. Above the line, there's just divinity. There's not three regions. There's not quasi-divine. There's not special creation. So Athanasius and others just kind of draw these two poles and say, it's one or the other. Which is it? Okay. 328, Athanasius arrives on the scene. He's often kind of pegged with Nicaea, but he's kind of uh, an understudy at Nicaea. But he will be kind of the chief advocate of Nicene Orthodoxy. Okay. This is less well known. We're probably familiar with Athanasius. We've heard of Nicaea. This third stage is where the drama, the complexity uh, occurs, right? From the start, there was no consensus over Nicaea. Some people signed on, some people refused to sign on, some people later disavowed it. There was nothing like consensus, okay? Critics of Nicaea were troubled because of this term, usia. So it's written in Greek, it's drawing on this kind of philosophical term, usia. And the connotations seem to implicate a materialist, divisible uh, kind of conceptuality that the uh, son being out of the usia of the father, are we saying that the son is some subdivision of the father's being? What does it mean to say that he's of the substance of the father, right? So if you're wondering, I don't know, then you're in good hands with the fourth century theologians. At the same time, the creed's use of homo usius, same substance, right, implied that the father and son were one and the same entity, so the critics are standing back and they're saying, I thought we were not doing that, right? I thought we were not doing that, but you're saying he's of the same substance, the same being. Are you saying he is the same being? That sounds, a little, that sounds very modalist, right? It sounds as though the sun appears to us in that mode. He manifests kind of sonship, but he's really just one and the same being, okay? So keep in mind through this talk, there's these two poles. There's the modalism, the monarchianism on one side. They're really wanting to protect the oneness of God, right? And in the extreme cases, they're wanting to protect kind of the untouchability of God. And he needs a mediator, okay? That's what Arius is really trying to do. On the other side, you might think of tritheism. Right? If you're going to grant multiple persons, why don't we just speak of three gods, right? So the, the trick for Nicaea uh, is to somehow carve a middle ground. Marcellus, again, less well-known. He's extremely pro-Nicene, perhaps too pro-Nicene. He says, no, 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 we're not going to talk about the word as being spoken um, as some sort of mode of the Father. He is so close to the Father um, that he is in the Father. So that little word, in the Father, is not uh, well received. Here's what Marcellus says, we're in the 70s. He says, at creation, the word came forth as the creating and redeeming energeia, the activity of God. Um, but he's really united so closely with the Father. 
So that stirs up uh, quite a conversation. <clears throat> Marcellus's disciple Photinus insists, and again in this language that for us is perhaps difficult to grasp, that there is not three hypostases. There's not three hypostases. Uh, there's just one. So again, sounding very modalist. So again, the critics of Nicaea step back and say, well, Marcellus and Photinus are really about Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. And when they speak, they are so insistent that there's not three hypotheses, persons, beings, individuals, something like that. Um, so they take it that Nicaea is a modalist creed, and they denounce it. Okay. So in 36, let's see, oh, I may have made, sorry, I may have had a date wrong previously. So in 36, Marcellus is condemned, and he's succeeded by an important figure for our story, uh, the anti-Nicene theologian Basil of Ancyra. Okay. Not to be confused with perhaps the more famous uh, Basil of Cappadocia. Okay. Athanasius is an interesting figure because he often gets connected with people who will later be seen as heretical, right? He is kind of about Apollinarian theology, if you know of that. He's about Marcellus, who gets condemned. He's about Origen, who gets condemned. But Athanasius somehow works through all of his own condemnations and exiles uh, and is seen as kind of the supporter of Nicene faith. Okay. Let me move a little quickly, because I do want to get to the next section. Um, so the anti-Nicenes, anti-modalist, okay? So they're pushing away from modalism, but they're saying Nicaea is modalist, that the three are just manifestations of the, three, of the one God. Uh, they issue the dedication creed, and it says this. The Son is the image of the divinity, the usia, the will, the power, and the glory of the Father. And they'll stop there. They want to set those parameters and say, do with that what you will. But those are the parameters within, we mu within which we must do uh, our theology. This, for Marcellus, Athanasius, and their crew, is not acceptable. They won't allow anything that speaks of independent existence of the Son. He must be somehow in, from, of the substance of the Father. Um, even though the dedication creed is similar to Nicaea in its uh, anathemizing uh, very Arian claims. Okay. All right, um, let me skip that. That's not too crucial. Um, we said that with uh, monarchian positions, modalist positions, adoptionist pers uh, perspectives, a key thing that people are for or against is the subordination of the son. Right? So the God is the Father who is kind of removed. Let there be a mediator who uh, moves into creation, uh, is the source of redemption, return to the Father. Um, but the Son is subordinate. He's not fully divine. Okay. Um, later in this stage, you have um, the famous, if you're into this sort of thing, the famous Eunomius. Uh, in his school, we might call it the Anhomoius. Right? So it's the son is wholly unlike. So really kind of doubling down and saying, not kind of like, let's, let's just be honest. There is nothing like it. Right? Whatever the father is in his essence, the son is an that. Right? He's an homoeus. Okay? Basil of Ancyra 
tries to forge a middle position. And Basil is, though he's anti-Nicene, he is really the forerunner of laying down uh, what will become the orthodox position. He wants to carve this middle position between modalistic language of Nicaea and radical subordinationism. So he says the son is not homoousius. He's not the same substance. That sounds modalist to him. He's not anhomoius. He's not totally unlike. So let's say he's homoousius, kind of like in substance. Okay? So it does seem at this point perhaps like word games, um, but I urge us to really take this seriously, that this for a century sent people into exile, etc. So it was, it was really crucial for them um, that what was behind these terms. Okay. So that's Basil, homoousius. Okay. Um, later in that stage, <clears throat> excuse me, Valens comes and there's yet another group, right? The so-called homoians. <clears throat> excuse me. This is really the pivotal uh, stage because it seems with uh, Constantius' support, with the rise of the Homoians, with Valens, that everything is going to turn, right? They have the emperor's support, there's councils, people are in, they're signing, people are being exiled if they're not down. So everything seems to be going well. Uh, at Bezier in 356, if you didn't sign on, to throw out Athanasius, and it's not entirely clear on what grounds, um, but if you weren't signing on, you were exiled. So finally, here enters Hillary. Hillary is one of those who won't sign on to do away with Athanasius, and they're deposed, and they're exiled. This is crucial. Hillary, remember, is in Gaul. He's in Latin-speaking, uh, the Latin-speaking world. When he's exiled, he's thrown over to Cappadocia. He's thrown over to the east, right? So that's going to be crucial for him. He's going to learn Eastern theology, and he's going to blend that with Tertullian's Western theology, and he's going to push that forward as Nicene faith. This, then, is what Christianity looks like it's going to be in the mid-fourth century. It's going to be homoian. If the emperor says so, it's so. And this is what he says. The son is like the father, homoi, right? Usia language is condemned. He's not homoi usia. He's just like the father. Let's drop this confusing usia language, right? There is no discussion of generation, right? We're not going to talk about generation or eternal generation or any of that. And simply the name father clearly indicates superiority over the son, right? If we think especially in the ancient world, the name says it all, father, son, okay? So that is the shape of Christianity if it weren't for <clears throat> a number of crucial theologians, okay? So again, not to bore you with too many details, the Nike formula comes out and with that in 360, uh, Homoian theology is stamped, the seal of approval, Nicaea, null and void. Okay? There is no Nicene creed said every Sunday morning. Rather, the Homoian creed would be said every Sunday morning. Okay? Hillary is outraged. He calls this the deception uh, of Araminum. 
Meanwhile, he's been exiled, 356. He goes over to the east side. He is learning Greek. He is exposed to Basil and his, though anti-Nicene, homoousian theology. So he's learning a lot. And he's learning the ins and outs of this conflict. <clears throat> On his return to the West, he has a new strategy. He says, we're going to focus on the son's generation. The Homoians are betting on their theology and kind of putting a fence around that term. So that is where we're going to go. Let's talk generation. His main theology is this. Beginning necessarily implies that the son is from the being of the father. So not terribly unique, but he will do some unique things. Okay. Let me summarize then, and then we'll take some questions. Three movements that use Usia language. And remember, if you're wondering what Usia means, so were they. <laughs> First, the pro-Nicene homo-Usian. So same Usia, whatever Usia means. Okay? That's the group of Athanasius. That's the Western bishops. That will become what we call kind of orthodoxy. Okay? Nicene orthodoxy. The son is from the substance of the father. He is of the same being. Okay? If that sounds modalist, then you're with some of these other groups. The homoi usian. There's just an I here separating a difference in theology. This is Basil's movement, um, which will really kind of merge with the homoousian once they kind of talk things out. The son is like the father according to his essence. Okay. Then there's the heterousian, or the anhomoian view of eunomius. The Cappadocians will later kind of take this on. And that is the view that the son is wholly unlike the father in essence. Okay? So, usia language has to do with being and essence. And the question is, can we say that he's homo, that being? Is he homoi, like that being? Is he anhomoian, totally unlike in essence? Right? Then there's that group that we just saw that seems to be winning in the 360s. And they say, forget usia language. We're not using that language. It's confusing. We don't know what it means. We're homoians. The son is like the father, right? By that, they really mean he is very much unlike the father. Okay. okay. So let me pause there. Questions? Yeah, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's too general to say that virtually any possibility here, any permutation that you can think of was probably put forward. 
Um, but it's very likely that there were so many positions over a number of centuries. Um, there's the ones that we, that have carried down to us. Um, but yeah, the, the question, and again, what becomes, if from our perspective looking back, there seems to be a middle ground, right? From another perspective, there's probably a different middle ground. But the middle ground is between one and three, right? The monarchians want to insist there is one being that's God. If we talk about kind of a disconnection and a separate being, right, are we talking about tritheism? Are we talking about three distinct beings, all of which are gods? Why don't we just call them Zeus and Hermes, etc.? So that's the difficulty, that if you can throw yourself back into that framework, the question of multiple gods is not foreign. Right? So why are Christians arguing? Why not just say that there's three gods? If you want to stop it there and not allow the pantheon to extend beyond that, fine. But why not just be tritheists? Right? So they're holding on to, clearly, the monotheism of the Hebrew scriptures. But they have to allow the pressures of the New Testament to push them in a new direction. Right? What does it mean for Jesus to say, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Right? So that name is going to become crucial for Hillary. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Could you or can anyone um, explain the distinction between essence and substance? Hmm. Let me try in a, in a second. Um, that's, that really is the question. Right? We throw around these terms that are crucial, but they're so slippery um, as are all kind of basic terms. Right? These are kind of, we're trying to get to the base of theology in our terminology, and we want to define them, but they're kind of our axioms, right? Yeah, Richard. Um, so, Tom, the question is, you know, there are books written, what would have happened if Hitler had won? Mm -hmm. So what would have happened if the Aryan position currently had won? Hmm. What would we look like if it happened? Uh, one, one response is that it, it didn't lose entirely. Right? And by that, I mean very famous people very long after these disputes were Aryan. So Isaac Newton, for instance, was Aryan. So Sinianism that comes up in the Enlightenment, they go back and look very much like modern theologians are doing and saying, all of that is kind of nonsense. We don't know what they're talking about. There's one God, and whatever you make of the sun, so be it. Right? So in some sense, um, not to dismiss your question at all, but it, yeah. So in some ways, it's, it's still present, right? In some ways, it's still present. What would it look like? Um, certainly, you can still do some of our theology, right? He still wants to grant that the sun is, is unique. The sun is above creation. That kind of prepositional theology where through the sun, the father redeems, he creates, etc. cetera. Um, but kind of like what Matt was saying, when it really comes down to it, and this was Athanasius's crucial point. If Jesus does not have in himself divinity and humanity, what can we say about redemption? Right? What can we say about redemption? So that's really the key, the key question for Athanasius. Um, we're running short on time. Let me just highlight, um, and I'll try to address this question of substance. It's, it's pretty difficult to do, clearly. Let me bring Aristotle to church, if that's all right. Aristotle, in his work, The Categories, I know that this is 350 on the other side of zero, 
but it's crucial. And by doing this, I'm not at all saying that these people were reading Aristotle necessarily, right? But if you take Tertullian's question, what has uh, Athens to do with Jerusalem? He wants to say very little in his polemical manner. The answer is very much, right? They have everything to do with each other, right? And that's true from the church fathers. They do this polemical writing where they say, we dismiss Greek theology or philosophy, and then they turn and use those categories all the time, right? So beware of the polemicists. What does Aristotle uh, say in the categories? Well, Aristotle is a brilliant systematic mind. He looks around the world and he says, what sort of things are there? What are there? And he says, there's these four categories. There's things that can be said of other things, okay? So that sounds obvious. That's up here in the right-hand corner. Above. So those are things said of, okay? The day is cold. Cold is being predicated of the day, okay? Aristotle, that's nice. There are then things, if we move top left, there are things that are not said of, okay? They're not said of because they are individual things and they can't be predicated of something else. Right? In other words, I can't look to something else and say, that's Tom Topel. I'm kind of base in terms of being. I can't predicate myself of something else. I am that one single being. Right? So for Aristotle, totally turning over Plato, he's saying, forget all these general class ideas. It's the individual that matters. That's the fundamental being. Okay? So, these cannot be predicated because they're individuals. I cannot look to something here and say, this glass is that glass. No, this glass is this glass. It's an individual thing. Okay. On the other hand, uh, they don't inhere in something. right? So for instance, back in the day, that language means that if you have brown hair, that quality of brown inheres in your being. It's not your being to have brown hair, right? but it does inhere in your being. Not so of these upper left, right? You don't inhere in something. Uh, you are the fundamental being, okay? So let's call these individual substances. So we're starting to get a sense of what substance is. It's not something that's kind of sticky on the table, right? Which, that's what we kind of think nowadays. Like, there's some sticky substance here, right? But it's, for Aristotle, just a thing. A thing that cannot be predicated of anything else, okay? It's just a basic unit of being, okay? Moving back to the right, these can be predicated. They're not individuals, okay? So I can say A of B. Uh, again, they're not down below, so they can't inhere in anything, and so they're still substances. So that's confusing. These are what we'll call class substances, okay? And I'll give you an example in just a moment, okay? Um, if we move away from the very fundamental, for Aristotle, substances, um, what we have are things that inhere, okay? So individual accidents, that I have brown hair, okay? And then class accidents. Accidents, I know, is a strange term, but it just means uh, what is not necessary to have, okay? What's an example? So an individual substance, examples. Hillary of Poitiers, okay? That's a primary Substance. It is a thing, cannot be predicated, does not inhere in anything. It is the being, okay? Because we're going to run out of time, think about the persons within the Trinity. Fundamental, irreducible, okay? Somehow individual. 
Martin, of two words, is a primary substance, an individual substance. When we move to what can be said of them, we start to classify. Aristotle is really just a taxonomist. That's what he does. Hillary is a human. That can be predicated of Hillary. Martin is a human. That can be predicated of. But it's fundamental. It's essential. It's not like Martin happened to share his cloak right, in his famous story. It's fundamental. It's the answer to the question, but what is it, right? Then there's some other things we can say. Hillary wrote the book, De Trinitate. Martin shared his cloak. Accidental, accidental, um, but individual, okay? And finally, Hillary is an author. Class accidents, right? We put him in the class of authors. He didn't have to be an author, right? And Martin is the same. Okay, so I know we are short on time. Let me just quickly give you a glimpse of what Hillary is doing uh, before Constantinople. What Hillary wants to do is he takes everything and puts it on the name and the birth of the sun. The name and the birth of the sun. And here's what he says. Let me move forward very quick. Here's what he says. He says, actually, let me move really forward. I just want to get these principles in front of you. Okay. He has two principles, right? And these, kind of, these are our takeaways for what is Hillary's theology. There is the name principle, and that is that name designates nature. If he's the son, then that designates his nature. Right? That's going to get him into trouble because the Homoians are going to say, yeah, his name is not the father. He has a different nature, right? So he kind of corners himself. So he moves forward and he says, consider the birth principle. Something that is born cannot be distinct from the nature of its origin. Right? Finally, here is the summary then of what Hillary does, and this is very unique. He says, something that is born cannot be distinct from its nature of origin. You might say, okay, my dad and mom are humans, I'm human, but we're still talking about like plurality. How do you deal with the one God? Hillary very uniquely says this. He says, if you are born of the Father, and you must have all the characteristics, right, those secondary usia, those class uh, properties, one of those properties is eternality. So the Son is one who is born, and in affirming that he's born of the Father is to affirm that he's eternal. So we affirm that the Son is the one who is born without beginning. The son is the one who is born. We can say he is begotten. But because he's begotten uniquely of the father, he must have the nature of the father, which is eternality. So in that way, he very much cuts off so many of the arguments of the critics. I should say it's 360 and not 380. So there's clearly some fighting that has to be done until you get to Constantinople. But Hillary is a crucial, interesting figure who blends east and west and forges a middle ground for what will become Nicene faith. Thank you. And you are a crucial